Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin. We are coming at you with a quick episode again after our last one. Our last one was a bit delayed, so here we are still. It's March 17th upon this recording, 2023, fresh off the big drone issues going on in the Black Sea. So, of course, we're going to be talking about that, as well as a bunch of other stuff going on around the world. Because, as we said before, this could probably be a daily show, but, you know... We don't have the time to do that exactly, so it's a weekly show, and now we've got two shows a week for you with Ether Hours, so you're really living in a content renaissance here, but Dimitri, uh, how are you? I'm feeling amazing, Conrad. There's uh, a lot of news. Obviously, the wheels of geopolitics never stop turning, and we're seeing not just the economic frustrations around the world, but also just the United States technically moving some of its, uh, you know, puppeteering uh, certain affairs around the world, tightening the screws on its on its hold against the Russian economy and, and the Russian uh, civilization. Uh, we're seeing a lot of pressure mount internationally, globally, but also great news from the Middle East, as well as some other. Uh, occurrences in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Lots to discuss today. There always is. There always is. But I think we're going to start with what's going on in the Black Sea. The Black Sea, you know, this could honestly be the Black Sea show. You know, there's Caspian Report. That's a popular geopolitics show. This could be called the Black Sea Report. But we're a lot more based than Caspian Report. We're not, you know, NATO Azeri propaganda. But when it comes to the Black Sea, it's been, you know, it's been the ocean of the conflict, right? I mean, everyone's been, from day one, we've been talking about Russia securing possibly the entirety of the Black Sea coast. We know the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus Straits are one of those things that we here at World War Now are watching all the time. And now we see this big $32 million drone taken down in the Black Sea by Russian jets. And we're going to get into the specific details of it. But just on that point alone, Dmitry, what do you, what do you think of this escalation? Well, I think the Russian Federation essentially has stuck its middle finger up to the United States and in international waters, seemingly. The Black Sea does have a slight strip along, alongside its middle, which is, you know, obviously the Black Sea has many, many countries adjacent to it and around it. But the, just the middle portion where the drone, through which the drone was flying, and of course the drone was surveilling Russian territory, naturally, with, with its, uh, I think it has 8.1 gigapixel cameras, so it's able to zoom and observe quite a lot of, you know, Crimea as well as the Ukrainian coast, and it was probably spying, essentially, which, which is the, it was what the Russians accused it of doing, and the drone was, of course, taken down in an act of disrespect by the Russian jets. I think it's a huge sort of uh, play of soft power against the US, and frankly, the fact that the jets didn't use any conventional weapons shall we say, is is also um, an interesting kind of feather in the Russian's cap. I mean, you could probably uh, go more into that, but it is a bit funny how the $32 million drone went down. Yeah, no, AZ Politics was the first to post what I saw was just the solid just image of the drone getting pissed on with fuel, getting its propeller blent, and then ultimately crashing into the sea. But the US, of course, did confirm that it did have surveillance equipment, like Dimitri said, the super high-powered camera that could count the freckles on your face. And then they wouldn't confirm nor deny any presence of weapons. So it seems that the Russians likely got to it first. So we'll probably be getting some reports from them soon about what actually happened. Because this thing was really close to Crimea. Like, this thing was very close to Russian territorial waters, barely, I think, still within international waters. And it seems that the U.S. even called on the Romanians to go and try to help them reach it before the Russians did, proving that this thing is, you know... This thing was up there, you know, in the in the bay that's created by Crimea, Romania, the Odessa region and everything. So this is very, this is all coming very close to home. And the Russians seem to be making it very clear that they consider the Black Sea kind of their lake. And I believe their claim was that they 
claim that even if they did shoot it down, they would have been within the, they claim they didn't shoot it down, of course, because they just dumped the fuel near it and did evasive maneuvers. But they claim that even if they had shot it down, they would have been within their rights because the drone was operating in territory they deemed their territorial uh, waters regarding the special military operation as in territory that they have designated for the special military operation. And they would view the United States entering into that as a violation and them basically declaring themselves actually as almost an active participant in the war as an active combatant, more than even just a soft power supporter of Ukraine. We should also remember just, I guess, the prudence of Russia at this point. I don't think Russia's messing around after the downing of the Moskva, uh, you know, flagship cruiser in 2022, which was a huge sign of, it was just the humiliation of the Black Sea fleet, which, you know, the Black Sea fleet is at least 250 years old, one of the oldest fleets of in Russian history. And uh, in April 2022, um, the huge Moskva cruiser was taken down by the by an unknown, uh, unknown source. Presumably, it was perhaps a, a torpedo, a long-range missile of some sort shot out by the Ukrainians, which is what the Ukrainians claimed it was them, but it could have, it could have actually been a Romanian submarine or something of that sort. It just historically speaking, Romania, which has a um, military port in the city of Constanta, which you know is on the Black Sea coast in the west, Romania being a part of NATO is a huge military concern for Russia because Romania does have as you know, it does have a small fleet as well as it did participate against Russia in both World War One and World War Two. Uh, your Romanian submarines actually dominated the Black Sea for some time when even the Soviet Navy wasn't very well developed, which is one of the great L's of the Soviet Union was the fact that it didn't really have a functioning navy in the Second World War, unfortunately, due to, you know, collectivization and just the um, the Russian Civil War, I think, slowing down industrialization causes. But that's kind of historical. Nevertheless, Russians, I think, are not just disrespecting the U.S., but they're also showing that after the downing of the Moskva, they're not going to mess around with, you know, U.S. actually having ships in the Black Sea, uh, flying these gigantic drones. And by size, we're speaking, this drone isn't just the size of your everyday commercial drone that you would use in your household. This drone has a wingspan of 20 meters, so it is roughly the size of a small, you know, two-person plane. It, it is a, a gigantic, essentially, for all for all intents and purposes, a, a gigantic flying robot which spies on you and which can carry weapons. Um, and the Russians, of course, have taken it down for this hilarious method of uh, releasing fuel and, uh, you know, wrecking its propeller, crashing into the sea. Pretty awesome, I'd say. But, you know, the U.S. naturally um, reacted also in a very um, predictable but also surprising fashion. I think that was, is pro will probably be the next point of uh, subject for us to discuss today. Well, these drones as well, they're... I mean, this has kind of been the major shift in warfare that we saw with Bush and really going in with Obama. Because, you know, they did the big deployments, they did the big Iraq and Afghanistan shows with force and everything. But ultimately, the prolonging of those wars and the real dramatic action of things that have been taken over the years are these drone strikes. You know, this advanced technological warfare, people sitting in bunkers in Nevada, taking people out across the, across the world. And, you know, they have names like Predator and Reaper, you know, it's this kind of, it's this kind of demonic, hellish vision of war with these crazy, crazy robots, a lot of them powered by even, you know, AI and algorithms, you know, swooping across the sky of many places, like the oldest, holiest places in the world and just bombing civilians. You know, Obama killed thousands of civilians in drone strikes, you know, despite being some, you know, liberal international darling of Nobel Peace Prize and whatnot. So the, the drone aspect of it is going to be a huge component of this new generation of warfare that we're seeing as World War III gets hotter and hotter with every episode of World War now, as it seems. But I think the directed energy we talk about, even with Turkey, you know, the more conspiratorial side for some people, but we know directed energy weapons are real. We've seen the U.S. military has released footage 
of their tests on their rail guns, their directed energy rail guns, as they call them, from ships, and applying these things to to drones. I mean, this is true. This is going to be like futuristic stuff, like you know, something you've seen out of a movie, you know, predictive programming type type beat. So I think paying attention to how the advanced Russian fighters that we know are actually in some ways outpacing the U.S., the new ones that they're making now, interacting with these, you know, drones and this kind of stuff. This is going to be these Casus Belli that are being manufactured, of course, the neocons trying to use this to ramp up violence against Russia and the American people, you know, citing the price of the drone as if some injustice had been done to us flying this thing all the way across the world. But this is how World War Three is going to be fought at the, with this technology, you know, with this information war all pairing in together. Yeah, that's right. And lest we forget the downing of the $100 million, if not $120 million drone by Iran, in 2019, which forced you know, President Trump essentially to almost essentially initiate a, an invasion of Iran, or seemingly the rhetoric in early 2019, that's that's what it was when um, that, that drone was taken down by the Iranian government. And so the reaction of the US is also, notice, it's proportional to the cost of the drone, right? The drone that was down by Iran was well over 100 million US dollars by, by that standing. And this drone, seemingly in the $30 million marks, the reaction is a bit less, to a lesser extent, Biden isn't out there calling for a third world war he isn't out there with his pompous rhetoric you know, claiming that russia has somehow instigated the beginning of world war three it's still somewhat measured if this drone would have been the same model of say the drone that was taken down which was the northrop global hawk which you know seemingly it's very similar it's it's more likely to actually carry weapons which is probably why the iranians take, took it down all those years ago during the trump presidency but nevertheless it seems that, that the u.s in a very philosophical matter um manner is still very uh, capitalistically driven the price of the drone is directly proportionate to the reaction of the state department well that uh that says a lot doesn't it but i think as we move into talking about the international criminal court and some of the stuff with putin the, the drone thing really kind of brings to mind as well like you know there's been these drone controversies before with people's reconnaissance robots operating in certain disputed airspace and they get shot down and there's an international outcry. But the the tear up from that, which has been a big thing between Iran, Russia, Turkey, Ukraine, the US, is when civilian planes get caught up in, in these air defenses and in these sorts of things. And we've seen this with, you know, flights on Turkish airlines uh, getting shot down by Russia, as well as, you know, the Malaysian airlines getting shot down. Not shot down, some shot down, others no lost and suspicious things. There's a whole show we could maybe even do about the weird things that go on in air travel. Check out our latest episode of Ether Hour, actually, for an interesting story about airplanes and saints and whatnot. But I think when something, we've now got to the point where if something like that were to happen, you know, the ones that happened, I believe, you know, those ones in 2014, 2017, these kinds of, these big things that some people are like, oh, we need to go to war with this country. They shot down a civilian airline. Tensions were nowhere near as high as they were now back then. So to think that what would happen if something like that were to happen now with way more air defense and way more stuff operating in places in theory near where planes would fly, that's that's going to be big. And it makes sense why Russia has created such a big airspace zone in their own territory away from the conflict to fly around to prevent such a disaster from happening. Yeah, that's right. And just speaking about, I guess, tying into international justice, international law and the downing of airplanes, um, in December last year, of course, we all recall the, we mentioned it on one of our episodes, Igor Stilkov, as well as some of the other famous, quote unquote, rebels of the Donbass resistance were sentenced by the Hague District Court, which is the International Court of Justice, to life imprisonment for the shooting down of the Malaysian Airlines flight MH17, which killed 298 passengers, right? Uh, which flew over the Donbass region during the beginning of the Donbass 
rebellion against Ukraine in 2014. Now, we do remember, of course, that it was never technically proven, at least at the time in those early years, exactly what shot down the particular passenger plane. But it does bring into question this, the future the future of, I guess, airborne airborne combat, you know, just the amount of the, the fleets of drones flying in the air, just the fact that domestic aircraft, international aircraft, uh, aircraft with passengers would need to kind of be wary of these potential civilian casualties caused by these uh, war zones and really um, it's it's like a whole different science in and of itself I think redirecting some of these flights and just the various airline companies need to be aware of exactly what's happening what geopolitical tensions are occurring in every part of the world at you know any given time um it's also i think worthy of consideration but igor stilkop as well as some of the others condemned to the hague tree you know already sentenced by the hague district court of course not appearing in the court themselves not presenting in defense but in absentia you know, sentenced to life in prison, it does kind of reflect on this next story, which was released literally hours ago um, on the eve of the weekend in the middle of March uh, from the International Criminal Court, which is slightly different to the International Court of Justice in The Hague, but still somewhat related. Um, again, a very amusing story and perhaps, again, a relation to some of the, the, the drone downing which occurred in the Black Sea. Well, the International Criminal Court, ICC, like you said, not to be confused with the International Court of Justice, somehow even less legitimate of an institution, if you can believe it, than the UN's, you know, attempt at an international uh, law enforcement and prosecution wing. But it seems that Putin himself, as well as some of his other officials, have been issued, you know, been charged in the International Criminal Court and have been, you know, called to appear and in theory, I guess, could be sentenced to life in prison, like perhaps we've seen some of the Serbian leaders from the Yugoslav wars be prosecuted and punished, you know, by Zog in such a similar way. And again, we see it, the ICC, of course, is the epitome of, you know, rules for me and not for thee. It's just whichever, you know, backwards, you know, Christian country, basically, they deem is on the receiving end of their justice. They're the only ones that can commit genocide. And they get charged, of course, whereas, you know, the those working for the international, the rules-based international order, they're immune from, from criticism. But the funniest thing about the International Criminal Court, which makes it even less legitimate than the UN's attempt, is it is not recognized by Russia, the US, China, Belarus, any of the countries involved in this, Ukraine, any of the countries involved in this conflict. So I think it's, again, people are making a big deal out of it. It's it's going to be used for propaganda purposes among your kind of basic neoliberal milieu that exists in the West, but ultimately it will, in the grand scheme of things, just serve to fully delegitimize Western institutions because there's nothing's going to happen from this, obviously. Yeah, and of course, amidst the uh, Ukrainian conflict, which Conrad mentioned, uh, has so much to do with war crimes and actual investigations, which we mean, Conrad, believe, do need to be investigated. For example, what exactly happened in Butcher? There needs to be an actual forensic investigation into who caused these war crimes. Of course, impartial and unbiased, which is hard to reach these days, but probably and probably not by the ICC or the ICJ, which seemingly uh, incredibly biased. You know, it's almost like this story with the drone being downed. The reaction was the US complaining to the ICC and actually issuing this uh, subpoena and court demand for Putin to appear. So almost as if this trial was a reaction to the downing of the drone, you know, which me and Conrad probably believe that that is the case. That is what happened. But Russia does not recognize the SEC. I think that's what that's the conclusion that um, many people need to kind of come to as well in, in sort of reading all these stories about, you know, Putin being 
Putin and his Minister for Children's Affairs um, being sentenced to, you know, not being sentenced, but being called to appear before the court is that Russia really doesn't recognize the authority of, of the ICC and hasn't since November 2016, which was amidst the Minsk 1 and 2 talks. And, and also, of course, Russia recognizing Crimea as part of its federation. And of course, the mounting of sanctions since 2014 has, has rather kind of disconnected Russia, the Russian Federation, from the international community. And Russia's, one of its reactions was to pull out of the ICC in 2016, so two years after the Maidan, two years after Crimea uh, joined Russia via the referendum. So we kind of see this timeline of how Russia was ostracized out of the international community. Russia didn't choose to leave. It was essentially bullied out of, you know, kind of cooperating with all these international, uh, you know, organizations and, and courts and things like that. These structures set up as set up by the Soviet Union in many ways all those years ago in the 70s and 80s. So in a way, in a way Russia's being pushed out of globalism by the globalists themselves. Very interesting um, philosophy there behind it all. Um, but nevertheless, the ICC, of course, calling the Minister for Children's Affairs of Russia, um, who is a you know pretty astute political lady. She's a public servant by profession and a lawyer as well. So she she was called again to appear in the ICC with Putin. Now, the reason for that would be the... Um, so they're, they're claiming, the court at least is claiming that the investigation, the prosecution has determined there is very strong evidence that Putin and his Minister for Children's Affairs has... Um, have breached the Geneva Convention regarding children. So they've uh, repatriatized or taken Ukrainian children to Russia and have made them have made them Russian citizens and have taken them away from Ukraine. Essentially, it's an it's an act. It's a somewhat uh, of a, a soft act of genocide of some sort. And children are really protected by the Geneva Convention and all of these different kind of amusing globalist structures using accusing Russia of you know taking children and abusing them when we know this is what some of these people are really you know they're all about children and abusing and things of this nature and we won't go into specifics that's more of an a for episode type of uh, discourse but nevertheless the talk is about children and Mariupol if we recall especially the siege of Mariupol which took place actually saw Russia retrieving many hundreds and thousands of children and actually sending them to a properly put properly um, looked after furnished refugee camps because Again, these children, their parents either left or were, or were taken hostage by the Azov Battalion, which was stationed in Mariupol. And some of these children really needed to be housed, needed to be looked after. So Russian, the Russian government determined that it would look after these Ukrainian Mariupol children. And, and of course, the ICC was, you know, didn't comment on the fact that neo-Nazis were involved. And Mariupol was, you know, essentially using hostages and using humans as a meat shield in uh, during the siege. You know, it nevertheless still pushed this idea that, hey, Putin and his minister of Children's affairs need to be taken to trial and need to be tried. There is uh, obviously, we, despite all of the evidence mounting for, you know, Ukrainian war crimes such as, you know, Ukrainians using um, paramedical as well as uh, medical transportation to carry troops across borders, dressing up in civilian uniform, putting on Russian uniforms actually during the war. All of these, I guess, breaches of international legislation aren't being investigated, but the first grand investigation by the ICC needs to relate to children, needs to relate to Putin being the bad guy. Again, an act of soft power humiliation and also disrespect, open disrespect to Vladimir Putin and his minister. I think overall that's the... Um, that's the message that the ICC is trying to send here. Well, frankly, even before the war started, I think it's a humanitarian act to take someone out of Ukraine and take them to southern Russia anyway. But, you know, sorry if it's controversial. But I think we haven't seen – there hasn't been any kind of even real propaganda push of like parents crying about their somehow repatriated children. This is just a bunch of nonsense. Of course, it's just – Children who may have lost their parents, children whose parents may have been forced into conscription, children whose parents or one parent may have joined up with a Donbass militia, those children are taken to 
places like Rostov on Don, nice European cities that are they're able to be safe from, you know, mortar fire and whatnot. But apparently the propaganda of using children as as war crime puppets is too powerful to pass up for an institution like the ICC, which is really just the European Union's attempt at an international court. And the only countries they really got to sign on are memes like Canada and somehow every South American country. But the majority of countries haven't even signed. The majority of relevant countries have not signed it or have withdrawn their signatures and whatnot. But there's still some countries, of course, that have signed on to it, a lot of the Anglosphere besides the United States. But it's, again, it's not really going to, this is likely not going to really go anywhere. But when it comes to Russia's reaction, like Dimitri said, they're, they're all of this, the U.S. kind of seeming to have nudged the ICC on this maybe after the drone went down. Well, Press TV is reporting that Russia's swiftly going to be awarding the pilots involved in the drone incident. So that shows the, uh, that kind of shows the attitude that they have. They're not phased by this sort of thing. I think they even at this point realize, well, this is another great opportunity to delegitimize a Western institution that has, was, is, has never really done anything good to begin with. But when it comes to international relations and whatnot, it seems that India, who you know we've praised on this show a lot for sticking to its guns and not picking a side and not cucking to the United States and buying Russian oil and whatnot, it seems, unfortunately, that they have decided to agree to the oil price cap when it comes to Russian oil. And there were some some games being played there. Dimitri, do you want to enlighten us a little bit? Yeah, so essentially, if you'd recall, one of the major sanctions that the Western international community has placed upon Russia and kind of urged all of the, essentially the entire international community, including some of the great Asian nations, to place upon Russia was the was was the pricing, uh, was the setting of a cap, a fre- an upper threshold to the sale of crude oil at 60 US dollars per barrel, which mind you, at the time was about 25 to 30% lower than the average sale of crude oil, which was going, I think, at the time the sanction was in- implemented, the, every barrel of crude oil was around $90. So they said, no sale of, you will not purchase Russian oil for more than $60 per barrel, which is was quite significant considering that Russia still very much depends upon its gas as well as uh, fossil fuels uh, sales across you know, around the world, including refined oil and, and crude oil in itself. So India agreeing to actually go along with this. In fact, this is not even legally binding. It's simply an international recommendation of sorts. India agreeing to uphold this um, this obligation to the international community and to the United States, specifically to Joe Biden, which praised Modi and the Indian government for going along with this in March of 2023, is, I think, a big sign that you know the world, as we kind of go into this hot phase of World War III, there are countries which are still choosing sides. And India, of course, was kind of on the, on the fence in many ways, maybe even was more of on the, on the pro-Russian side. But countries are looking out for their own personal interests first and foremost. We speak many times on, we spoke many times on previous episodes regarding Turkey and how Turkey was taking the stance of neutrality, looking after its own personal affairs, kind of choosing maybe perhaps to be a leader in the Muslim world as opposed to just the puppet of NATO or just like the lieutenant of the United States and NATO. Nevertheless, countries such as India must also look out for their personal affairs in this case. And of course, one of India's greatest interests would be the, the its border with China, which, you know, there is a certain benefit that the US has granted India 
upon agreeing to this oil club. Before we go into that detail, there is there is a small caveat here that uh, a lot of, the, so for example, The Economist, uh, Washington Post, they are very wary of the fact that, yes, India verbally has agreed to uphold this $60 cap, you know, and Modi himself has said, look, we're going to agree to it. The, uh, the Indian Ministry of Commerce said, yes, we will be auditing all the banks and all of the oil companies to make sure they're all buying Russian oil for $60 a barrel. We'll make sure none of this is, you know, no laws are broken where upholding international conventions but in fact you know the reality may be a bit more covert than that see there is a there's a certain chance that the russians are actually selling oil for a lot more than 60 dollars per per barrel to to india through you know there's an um a very conspiratorial view that the russians have a shadow fleet of oil tankers actually sailing international waters changing flags as they enter into indian indian waters changing their flags the indian flags selling uh oil on mass to indian refinery companies for even more than 60 dollars somewhere in the 70 80 dollar ranges and this is all being done off the books these oil barrels are transported uh transported kind of from from russian ships to indian ships the money is being paid for covert accounts none of this is being audited of course or checked and the the statistics from western sources are quite staggering actually they're claiming that there are 600 russian tanker ships 400 of them carrying crude oil 200 refined oil traveling from russia this is annually around the world selling this oil illegally under various international flags essentially similar to like pirate ships right this pirate these pirate tankers working for the russian government selling crude oil and refined oil to countries which uh, just want to buy russian oil en masse and not really adhere to these 60 dollar sanctions which you know russia is not going to sell you say millions and millions of dollars worth of crude oil if you're only going to pay 60 dollars a barrel that's simply not the contract you know russians not russians aren't going to sign those contracts with you they're not going to discount oil in this way so i think there's a lot to say about indian russian relations here yeah no i think it's it's a big deal and when it comes to india's decision with russia and its relationship with china that's kind of the big thing and we know that india and china don't get along but they've both have actually great relationships with russia india does have a very good relationship with russia it buys a lot of weapons from russia so it was obviously able to look past all of its alliances with china but india is more aligned with the west with the united states it's a former you know, state of the British Empire after all. So of course it is going to be like that. It's a diverse, it's quote unquote, the biggest democracy in the world and the most populated nation in the world. This year it surpassed China at 1.4 billion people. So India, most populated nation in the world, but stretching in its huge wingspan, especially in its north, there are huge disputes that India has with China in the Himalayas, across the Himalayas, in the Eastern and Western Himalayas. Arunachal Pradesh being the one in the eastern Himalayas with its dispute, and Latak being the other region that it has a dispute with China with, which is actually more bordering with Pakistan, which gets involved there too. But very recently, as Dimitri just explained, India agreed to this oil price cap. What it seems they seem to have been rewarded as, and we're reading this from the Indian Express, which is a big Indian source, the United States recognizes the McMahon line as the international boundary between China and Arunachal Pradesh, according to a bipartisan Senate resolution, which sees Arunachal Pradesh as an integral part of India. At a time when China continues to pose grave and gathering threats to the free and open Indo-Pacific, it is critical for the United States to stand shoulder to shoulder with our strategic partners in the region, especially India, Senator Bill Haggerty, who, along with Senator Jeff Merkley, introduced a resolution in the Senate set. So... The U.S. has, you know, stepped in, said, all right, we're deciding on the behalf of the international world what this border is, and it's for India. 
And I don't have necessarily a super strong opinion on this. China claims a lot of these parts of southern Tibet. And I know a lot of people want to come be like, oh, free Tibet. But, you know, we're not really about that PSYOP here on World War Now. We know the Dalai Lama is a CIA asset. So sorry, Tibet heads, but it's not happening here. But this level of, you know, soft power and this manipulation, Indians are excited about this. So they've the United States has done some work to win some public support in India back, as well as directly oppose China. And show India that they're willing to, you know, help them in some of their national interests against their big, you know, superpower neighbor. And India, of course, you know, it seems to, if this was worked out behind the scenes, India made sure to hold good on their deal. And we're going to see, you know, maybe they are buying from these shadow fleets. But Modi seems to have liked this little gift from the U.S. and will be going with a price cap, which is disappointing. Because I, I, I was really hoping because India has done a good job standing up to globalism. Their foreign minister is like George Soros's biggest enemy. I can't forget his name, uh, Jay Shankar, I believe is his last name. He has called out George Soros on a dozen international forums at this point, and you know they've they, they've really asserted India as a civilization state. And someday I would like to visit India. It's got a beautiful northern region. These regions actually that are disputed: Ladakh, Arunachal Pradesh. These are very beautiful parts of the world that are sparsely populated, but I think places that I would really enjoy visiting someday, and many people would as well. And it shows that these flashpoints in this, as the World War III goes hot, as we've talked about, these civilization states that have these old ancient flashpoints in these sometimes dramatic and extreme parts of the world, this is going to be a big part of, of what goes on, as we've talked about in fifth generation, 21st century warfare. Yeah, and I guess America's perspective here is quite clear. It, uh, you know, India agrees to something to to follow these international orders and to pressure Russia some more. Of course, benefiting the United States, benefiting the EU and NATO as a whole, and the U.S. can give something back. The U.S. is, of course, still very, um, as we mentioned earlier, still very capitalistic in its in its philosophy. So there is a trade ongoing. There is valuable consideration given, and one of the benefits, of course, that India receives is this uh, sliver of southern Tibet or this this very beautiful mountainous land, which it has disputed with China for many years, since the 1950s at least. And both sides have given concessions, actually. Naturally, Tibet wants to be so-called independent, not Indian or Chinese, but neither of these two superpowers will, of course, agree to that vision of Tibet. So the Dalai Lama will continue his um, complaining kind of into perpetuity. Now, I guess I'll just quote uh, U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley here, which kind of exemplifies his vision of why China needs to be punished with the granting of Arunachal Pradesh to India. And he says... America's values supporting freedom and a rules-based order must be at the center of all of our actions and relations around the world, especially as the Chinese government pushes an alternate vision. This resolution makes clear that the United States views the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh as a part of the Republic of India, not the People's Republic of China, and commits the U.S. to a deepening support and assistance to the region, alongside like-minded international partners and donors. So you can see Jeff Merkley kind of gives this overarching view that, yes, China has been uh, in the sort of the the log in the eye of the United States for just just over a year now, at least since the big since not since the beginning of the Biden presidency, but definitely in the second half of it, especially with the balloons and all kinds of other covert uh, spy operations the Chinese have allegedly been you know, conducting over U.S. Uh, you know, U.S. sources, and also just the fact that the you know, the entire COVID affair, I suppose, has occurred um, under the auspices or with China's involvement. So there is a lot of tension in this area. And now the U.S. is firmly stating that it's willing to pressure the PRC, which is the People's Republic of China, even further by um, assisting India in this uh, agreement. So we definitely see the U.S. siding more with India here and trying to take India, its attention and its 
uh, I suppose, taking the value of having India on Russia's side away from the Russian Federation. So perhaps India will follow through, or maybe there's a... Maybe India is just playing both parties at this point, just kind of trading with Russia through the shadow fleet of hundreds of tankers at the same time verbally agreeing, saying, yes, yes, of course, we'll follow your your international order. But, you know, behind the scenes, there's still money being exchanged with the Russians. You know, the, the show must go on at the end of the day. We're still going to buy Russian weapons, the Sukhoi planes, which are taking down drones by spilling oil on them. Like, this is all quite interesting i think the relationship between india and the u.s is definitely strengthened and china is continuing to face more discrimination in the international world affairs no it's 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 unfortunate and this whole region china india pakistan bangladesh these are huge population centers that as the global economy has you know kind of gotten away from those that enacted it have become power centers that need to be influenced by the u.s the gae zog whatever you call it and i think in the same region, Pakistan is an interesting case because it's kind of almost on the brink right now. Imran Khan, kind of a populist leader, you know, was the popular prime minister of Pakistan. He's, you know, got warrants out for his arrest. All of the other political parties are united against him in Pakistan. And there's like total warfare in the streets of Islamabad, Lahore, these big cities in Pakistan. And you can see this. We've posted them on our Twitter. There's crazy videos of citizens just throwing huge Molotov cocktails actually standing up against the police and really literally defending like the physical location of Imran Khan and his kind of entourage. And he is kind of, people think that, you know, Trump and his January 6th moment was big. Like Imran Khan is taking that to whole nother levels. He's got so much popular support in Pakistan that an entirely united front of, I guess, more, you could say, globalist or internationally aligned politicians, they're not able to take him down. He's got like a private army of civilians. And remember, Dimitri, talked to a Pakistani man who confirmed this to us in a Twitter space a while back that, you know, Imran Khan, you know, whatever you think of him, he is very devout, I believe, in his Islam. He is kind of this populist leader that was, in some regards, seems to have stood up for just a maybe a Pakistan-first kind of perspective. And we know Pakistan is an intelligence-run state. The ISI, which is a Pakistani intelligence collective, kind of has more... It's, it's like the U.S. and Israel in that way. It's this intelligence state. The U.S., the U.K., Israel, Pakistan... That's their their role. Australia, I believe, could be almost classified in that regard. The intelligence state kind of rules these nations. And I think that's a big thing we need to watch. And now Pakistan, it's also experiencing extreme natural disasters, blackouts. It's it's almost on the brink. And this is a country with hundreds of millions of people, one of the most populated countries in the world. So I think as this whole region goes, this is going to be a big part of, of World War Three. And we know we have a lot of prophecies from St. Paisios, St. Joseph, you know, Saints like Saint Seraphim and stuff about things that will go on in the Orient, whether it's Chinese and Japanese launching hundreds of millions of troops and armies across Central Asia, and what that would mean for places like Pakistan and how that would relate to, you know, current projects like the Belt and Road. These are all fascinating questions we want to explore. And it seems right now that the whole like the U.S. is making decisions rapidly, trying to bring India back into its sphere and trying to also get Pakistan with a you know more amenable leader so that it can also be part of part of this push against Russia China. So g- generally speaking I I believe the US as well um well not just the US but also NATO as a whole it does have a limited a limited uh, amount of time in terms of it has it has to enact all of these global machinations and take as much as much financial support away from Russia in a short amount of time while Ukraine is still standing while you know Ukraine is still defending against Russia's invasions as so it's called and 
in most media sources. But uh, frankly, the entire Middle East is is very very much involved in this. You see, not just Turkey, Iran, but also Pakistan. We mentioned Pakistan being one of the three which has actually nuclear capacity in terms of nuclear weapons, and that's that's another um, great point of mention that it, Pakistan is on that border between what we'd call Asia, the Orient, and the Middle East. It is it is that borderland similar to Afghanistan, and you know, greatly miss uh, you know sometimes almost ignored because you see most stories speak about Iran or India at the same time. Pakistan many many times simply does not get the mention, but it, it is it is the great leverage that the NATO and the U.S. influences could use against India. Like one of them, of course, is China and the U.S. Of course, achieving achieving its its sort of long term goals against Russia through leveraging this Chinese territory in 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 the favor of India, but it can also achieve more cooperation with India by, again, going against Pakistani interests, for example, you know, pressuring uh, Imran Khan or sanctioning Pakistan for not following certain obligations. So out of these three nuclear nations, the U.S. really is trying to divide and conquer them in order to keep them occupied for, uh, you know, uh, Belt and Road initiatives and all these, uh, I guess, regional corporations to not actually become substantiated over a large period of time. I I think generally it is it is quite Masonic. It is a certain order out of chaos that's being created in in all of Asia, Central Asia involved as well, but in the Middle East especially. And we see we see this uh, more and more in Turkey that you know we're approaching the election, and Iran is of course destabilized quite heavily at the moment, but Pakistan as well. It's like none of these great Middle Eastern or uh, shall we say, Middle East and Central Asian countries are doing quite well. There's always something internally going on which prevents stability from occurring, which I think favors the U.S. and favors some of these international interests and um, globalist well, powers. Yeah. No, well, I think uh, we're going to switch over to Turkey in a bit, but perhaps as we see uh, Pakistan and India get brought into the great game, maybe the U.S. will pick a side finally on you know the Kashmir issue and really push for one of them to have it, and they view them as you know going to be their true ally against their enemies in the region. But when it comes to Turkey, it seems that we're moving forward on the possible growth of NATO, and Turkey has said that they will move forward and put the necessary paperwork and and file the the laws that it would need for their assembly to vote for Finland to join NATO, but they see have, seem to continue to reject Sweden. And part of that is they have called for, I believe, 120 terrorists to be extradited to Turkey, and Sweden has since refused to do that. And there's some other reasons, of course, I think, that Turkey will cite and Erdogan will cite to help him win support in the upcoming election for why he's keeping Sweden out of NATO. But at the same time, perhaps signing Finland into NATO to keep U.S. pressure off of him, because if he were to go hard and reject them too, the U.S. might put the put the pedal on the gas there. What, what do you think about that? Oh, I think it's uh, it's quite scary, actually, that Erdogan has finally made this pro-NATO move, at least in recent years, especially since the beginning of the SMO. Turkey really hasn't um, substantiated its heavy support for NATO, and I guess its heavy support of Ukraine against Russia, except for what we see here, as in taking off the veto from Finland, you know, for, for Finland to join... Uh, to join NATO and against, obviously, this is a move against the Russian Federation, even in uh, a soft power form. 10, 15 years ago, this would have been seen as scandalous by Russia. Just at the moment, at the moment, Russia is so preoccupied. It's simply, I don't even think um, Russian official sources have even commented on this 
lifting of the veto. So Finland joining NATO would be a huge move in terms of bolstering NATO's capacity against the Russian Federation and even um, kind of, again, pressuring Russia even further, not just, you know, in similar ways to how India has agreed to the cap. This is uh, even more of a, a tightening of the noose around the Russian Federation. If Finland does share a hundreds of kilometers of borderland with Russia, as well as its adjacency to the former Russian capital, St. Petersburg, in the north of Russia, does place it in a very key position to, you know, apply apply continuous perpetual pressure on Russian geostrategic interests in the north, in the Baltic Sea, as well as in the Arctic Sea, in, in uh, you know, for Russia's northern fleet and Baltic fleet. This is, again, this will be huge if Finland joins NATO, and, and not in a good way for Russia, but for NATO's sake, it will be, of course, a, a huge perk. And Erdogan has finally greenlit this, um, you know, this ascendancy of Finland into NATO. I'm just wondering uh, exactly how long the ascendancy will take, and if anybody else... If this was the last, if this was the last check that needed to be done before Finland could, of course, enter NATO. Now, now, of course, NATO Finland has no border disputes with any of its neighbors, including Russia, which, of course, would um, technically qualify it if into NATO membership. I think overall, this is one of the biggest stories we've heard about so far. No, it's true, and it seems that if I were a betting man, I think it's probably going to happen. And I think the real question is, what's Russia going to do in response? Are we going to see? I mean, I think all of us would like to see a dramatic response. We'd like to not get our hopes up about those because we know that's not really how the Russian, the Kremlin works. But, I mean, what's what's something that could happen? What if Russia decided to formalize Belarus's accession to the Russian Federation? What if Russia decided to help China take the Kinmen Islands or something off the coast of off the coast of China that are technically occupied by Taiwan? Uh, there's all sorts of things I guess they could do in that response. Maybe they Maybe they do something in Transnistria, as we've discussed about before and on previous episodes. You know, there's Russia has said that they want to increase the rate of their response, the equal equality, I guess, of their response with what the provocations are. So I'm curious, maybe your thoughts on what could be done if Finland is brought in within the next few months. I think generally support for China in the, um, you know, in the South China Sea and the uh, Yellow Sea would be preferable. Uh, of course, supporting countries such as North Korea and China and East Asia would, would apply a significant pressure to U.S. interests in that region. And it would also kind of point out that, yes, if you're going to do something against us in our European theater, we will react and we will not just sit back and actually take this uh, abuse. Um, I think that's warranted and it needs to happen as as far as Belarus actually, um, you know, coming into coming into the Russian Federation and joining uh, in, in a certain capacity, that would be great. Again, based on Lukashenko's recent interviews, which were incredibly pro-Russian, but he never seems to mention the fact that he's still very much a Belarusian man. So it doesn't uh, it doesn't seem to me like Lukashenko would be the would be the guy to pull the trigger. I think Putin would need to personally actually address Lukashenko and ask him that look, this needs to take place now because we need to you know there's a certain the time is running out. We actually need to force this union. Um, I don't think Lukashenko would be the one initiating this uh, particular proposal. I think he's quite happy with where Belarus stands now. You know, receiving aid from Russia, significant import um, and export considerations and uh, economic benefits. Belarus is a very, very happy country. Russia, of course, needs Belarus in order to bolster its military as well as you know, assist it in the special military operation. On that end, maybe even ending the entire conflict a lot sooner, which is what we ultimately all want to see. So, my hope is yes that Belarus, of course, would join Russia. But you know, it, maybe this will happen again. Uh, this uh, ascension of Finland into NATO could take place over the span of ten to twelve months, maybe even longer, maybe two years. So, perhaps we're looking at um, medium-term prospects, so to speak, 
Uh, and when that does take place and Finland actually takes on NATO and actually takes on all the guarantees which NATO does provide it, perhaps then we'll see Russia actually react accordingly and slowly phase Belarus into its, um, uh, like bring it in a lot closer, which I think needs to take place. So ultimately, this is what I think everybody would want to see, including China. China wants to see a very strong Russia holding back the US and NATO interests in Europe. And Russia wants to see a strong China. So I think everybody can benefit here if Russia makes the right moves now. And in many ways, I think Russia benefits are having Belarus as its own country, you know, giving it legitimacy, another country on the international stage, supporting it, voting with it at the UN and whatnot. Because the, the, the three main leaders openly supporting Putin and the SMO are Lukashenko, Assad, and Kim Jong-un. And I think it's he likes having that little group of guys that, you know, have their countries and they, they support him. But in general, we know Belarus is fundamentally a part of the Russian world and, and will, I believe, in our lifetimes be absorbed into the Federation. But unless you have anything else you want to say on NATO, I think we want to talk about the, some of the protests in France, the general economic situation that has really spread from the US to Europe as far as mass bank failures go. And we're seeing that also in Moldova, which is really more just being directly affected by the Ukraine conflict. But they've been affected by the energy stuff and some of that in Europe more than everyone, because Gazprom is, is, you know, Russian in many ways and has its contracts all through Russia, which is the main Moldovan energy source. And now Moldova is experiencing big protests based on, you know, its energy and economy issues, as well as general desire among the people to stop supporting Ukraine and NATO and everyone in this war. And perhaps we may, this may even lead to Dodon or a pro-Russian government rising again in Moldova, which would be fascinating. But France is experiencing even similar protests spreading well outside of Paris. We see them in Bordeaux and Strasbourg, I think, and other, other major cities. And we're seeing huge chants of, you know, we decapitated King Louis, we can do it again to you, Macron, and like things like that calling for that. We see this a lot in France. They love to protest. But these are getting up to almost the levels of some of the peak yellow vest moments again. So it's interesting to talk about. Yeah. And Macron has really asserted himself as this international character, whether it's in Armenia, Azerbaijan, or, you know, the war in Ukraine. He's really been pushing for sending more and more stuff from France. He sacked, he's quick to sack, you know, French generals and officials who say anything pro-Russian, which the French military actually did have a lot of pro-Russians in its ranks, I think, at some points before a lot of this began, which I'm sure they've all been picked out now. But I believe Bank Suisse, which is one of the biggest, you know, banks in Europe that's used is experiencing extreme volatility. There's other stuff. And that has, that's, that's, that's going to be on top of the pension protests going on in France, the huge protests in the Netherlands by the farmers that seem to have resulted in the BBB, the farmer kind of populist, anti-green globalist party. They are now the biggest party in the Dutch Senate. So there's, there's kind of this big turmoil already going on as far as reaction against some of these globalist puppets and now it seems there could be this looming economic specter that seems to be growing in the u.s as well as something i saw something like 200 banks are now in danger of bankruptcy and i don't know how big all those are but 200 that's a lot of banks and it seems that that contagion spreading to europe i'm wondering where this will all go Right. So I think the, the, the most interesting uh, story to me, at least from France, was just the fact that uh, most of the protesters against the increase in pension age and against Macron noticed, demographically speaking, they were white Frenchmen. Now, we know the average, the, the if looking at the French demographics, the population of the, I guess, the what you would call the native French, the uh, 
local French ethnicities are mostly naturally mostly white and naturally they're mostly aging as well you know the overall birth rate's been quite low and the aging French population so the actually the native Frenchmen are protesting that Macron has increased the pension age from 62 to 64 which of course places significant pressure on the not just the aging population but also their access to their superannuation which it was probably we're speaking about hundreds of thousands of dollars per person if not France is a quite a rich country since World War II at least has experienced significant economic growth and of course being a major player in the euro we may be speaking about billions of euros essentially still being held in these superannuation funds um for two more years so the the average pension age increase has been oh well the, the threshold by macron has been increased from 62 to 64 and you may say well two years why, why can't this oldie just wait for two more years but the consideration here is maybe it applies pressure to not just the white population of france at this point uh, those of those french who probably are a bit more anti-immigrant a bit more conservative in their views so so, so we're speaking about French boomers here, um, as well as the potential uh, keeping the, the potential of keeping all of that superannuation in those funds to prevent uh, any further economic collapse in Europe, as we saw. You know, the European Central Bank just today, so literally on the I believe it was the 17th of March, increased its interest rates by 0.5 percent in just you know a spontaneous hike in reaction to the Silicon Valley Bank shutting down just a couple of weeks ago in in America. So in order to prevent any any sort of sort of machinations in in terms of banking and any fluctuations and pressure on the banking system not just in the u.s but in in the eu the eu has determined to just increase up interest uh, you know hike up interest rates which of course affects mortgage prices even higher for you know younger people especially but nevertheless uh, all very negative for european economics and american economics and naturally more pressure on the uh native white french population i'm not sure what that has to do i'm not french myself so and not too familiar with the french populism in general the french right wing some part of me does suspect that maybe there is, this does have something to do with macron perhaps appealing to the younger crowd of uh, say fresh immigrants coming into france and you know them kind of asserting their dominance over you know french society but i'm not sure what are your thoughts about this conrad because you know this this is very um it touches on a lot of very uh sensitive subjects i think in the eu in general no i mean france has suffered among its in its diversity and you know the french population is getting more and more sick of it. The right wing grows every year, and a lot of the COVID stuff didn't help with any of that. But I think in many ways, the French right, you mentioned you don't too much about it. The French right is actually very, compared to the rest of Western Europe, is by far the most pro-Russian of any of the right wing. And that has a lot to do with white emigres having fled the Soviet Union after the revolution. Actually, a lot of orthodoxy growing. People hear about the Paris school of orthodoxy. There's a lot of a lot of Western Orthodox heritage actually does come from France and those Russians that had fled to France and some of the people that came to Orthodoxy through all of that in the West. But in many ways, part of this is the French people are always kind of, they've always been against their government, regardless of what's going on. They love to protest. But Macron has been experiencing extreme popular unrest really since the beginning, despite the fact that he's you know able to win these elections against, you know, France is a fundamentally secularized, liberalized society, so it's hard for genuine reaction to win in any capacity, especially with all these immigrants. But even then, I think France will be one of these countries that's actually more likely, especially than countries like the UK, parts of Scandinavia, areas that to rise actually against some of this technocracy. But we see even when it comes to the immigrant stuff, though, Macron lost to Le Pen in Guadeloupe, which is an entirely black African, you know, overseas part of, you know, France. And during their elections, they 
voted for Le Pen because they hated what Macron did to them with vaccine passports and, and mandates so much. They went to civil war over it basically for a while. So it, it shows you that even, you know, perhaps some of these blacks, they they may even turn on it if it gets so bad. But, you know, you can't rely on that. The, the fresher they are, I think, the more likely they are to just vote for whoever kind of says. But I think, yeah, France will, in many, I, a lot of this has to do, we're talking about India and everything. I had drawn up this map, you know, years ago at this point. And the hypothetical World War Three, like who would side on what side? And I had like five different categories that I put each country in. And I had France always, compared to the rest of Europe, leaning more towards Russia. I had China, of course, siding with Russia. And I even had India, actually, still slightly leaning towards China and Russia in the long term. But now it seems that generally that map actually has turned out to be somewhat correct in a lot of ways. Maybe I'll revise it a bit and post it somewhere. But it, India seems to have been moved into... Uh, I have them as blue in the whole conflict. They've been moved into blue away from away from red. So I think that's it's it's it's, it's interesting to watch. And you know, France and Europe, you know, as NATO is uh, as NATO grows, it will also strain itself and begin to possibly collapse under its own weight. And France will always pay a big part in that. And just wanted to, I guess, bring up Eastern Europe in regards to the uh, French increase in pension age. Now, if you recall, the during the FIFA World Cup in 2018, the Russian government actually announced for a pension reform, inc- substantially increasing the retirement age in Russia, which, you know, it, it kind of, you know, the Western, Western sources claim that they use the FIFA World Cup as a certain cover in order to, you know, hide the fact that the pension age was increased. But the, the increase was quite substantial, at least for Russians who, in general, allegedly have a lower life expectancy than their Western European counterparts by a few years but the increase of pension in russia at the time in 2018 was from for men it was between the age of 60 and 65 to 65 so five year increase and for women it was uh from 55 to 63 so an eight year pension age increase for women nevertheless obviously this is a negative trait because once pension age is increased you essentially uh don't really have a choice you're you're forced to work up to a certain age. If pension age isn't increased, you still have a choice whether or not you want to actually go on the pension, uh, retrieve your super, or you can continue working. There's a lot of people who work well into their pension age because, frankly, they either enjoy the job they have or they you know, enjoy the particular profession. So it was never really answered, and it did, in many ways, fluster Putin's reputation and the reputation of United Russia for pushing the pension age from 60 to 65. Obviously, this is four years before the special military operations, so perhaps Russia had economic considerations. It wanted to keep the pension age higher in order to uh, substantially, you know, withhold a lot of the superannuation money from the Russian elderlies, which you know sounds sounds a bit mean and almost utilitarian, pragmatic, perhaps. But perhaps this pragmatism was needed. Again, this is me speculating because we haven't received an answer from Putin or his party as to why the pension age was so drastically increased, and the you know. The protest and the outcry was quite significant. You know, people like Navalny and a lot of Russian liberals used this against the, the Russian state, but also a lot of right-wing Russians and even Orthodox Russians, including priests who don't really receive a proper salary in Russia. So for priests and bishops and clergymen to actually go on the Russian pension a bit earlier would significantly improve their livelihood. Um, at this point, they would need to wait until they're 65 to do so. So just, you know... So, just to kind of throw in that comparison, Macron is only increasing the pension age by two years. Meanwhile, Russia did the same, increased by five. Um, I'm not sure what exactly the implications of the pension age are. If anyone has any comments on that, um, feedback externally, pl- feel free to comment or maybe DM me on Twitter. Or I'm interested in as to what the calculations are for these particular nations. I think Conrad, myself, would love some feedback maybe on the Substack or in the YouTube comments to let us know what the um, what the strategy is long term here. 
No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And we, yeah, please leave your comments on all this stuff, especially those who are experts on the economy. Not, we, we, we're educated. We know some of our stuff. We don't claim to be economics experts here. But I think one more thing on kind of the economy stuff I want to mention, getting prophetic and then just getting a little bit introspective about, you know, what may be to come in the world. Then we'll switch to wrapping this up, talking about the persecutions and the latest things going on in the church. I think we see the euro... It's 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 pretty widespread at this point. Sure, the UK never got on it. Hungary isn't on it. There's some other countries that resist it, but it's this big institution. And as the if these banks in the in Europe and these and are are kind of in danger of collapsing at, at the same time as there's financial, economic, monetary strife within these countries, you know, there and the US experiencing the same thing with the dollar, and we're seeing de-dollarization. We talk about India and Russia and the gas. I mean. Saudi Arabia, Iran, they're going to be selling to these countries outside of the dollar, really selling in the yuan, the Chinese currency now. So the dollar is going to be, could, there's a strong chance the dollar becomes a lot more volatile in the next the next few years. And uh, the one thing I'll just say, please check out episode one of Ether Hour. You know, we it, 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 the full episode, it, it's paid. It really helps us if you support it. There's a free trial, though. So if you really want to listen to it, you can sign up for the free trial. Check out episode one Ether Hour to hear more about this. But the youth of Yacheslav, who we talk about, he prophesied that that he prophesied about the euro before it existed. The euro didn't, the word euro wasn't a thing until 1995. He died in 1993. He said that this euro would be adopted by Europe and eventually would even be adopted by America. And that kind of has me thinking, because some of the earliest iterations of the euro, they, I believe, had something to do with the Austrian currency being one of the first ones they were looking into. Austria, I think, still has its own currency now. But the euro is... This is this first kind of attempt at the global currency, but being a super regional currency. And we're hearing a lot about the idea of CBDCs and central bank digital currency as, you know, people turn to crypto during this 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 kind of mainstream currency volatility. So, Dimitri, I kind of want to ask you, like, do you think that there's a chance that amidst this economic volatility, we could see a turn towards this in a globalist fashion using the blockchain in that way? Absolutely. I have to agree with one of our previous guests on the show of World War Now, um, with whom we had a really great episode, Jay Dyer, who did predict the fact that any sort of shutdown in banking or the crash of fiat will not be accompanied by us, of course, disconnecting from the globalist project. No, the globalist project will be deepened by the fact that you know, we'll be moving on to the blockchain. And so there will be a creation of a certain controlled version of a Bitcoin, perhaps a, you know, maybe a version of a USDC, USDT, um, a coin connected to just the US dollar, perhaps, um, again, cementing that petrodollar version of the future and moving away from this volatility of the fiat, perhaps a um, euro coin of sorts, maybe a NATO coin, an Atlantic uh, version of of a future currency which can be transported over the blockchain this is i think the future of finance and the future of globalist control and you know pushing essentially also perhaps even the future of multipolarity here as we see maybe uh russia moving the ruble onto the blockchain and china as well moving the yuan and so forth onto the blockchain it could it could on one hand cement globalism and cement this control over worldly affairs in terms of finance and moving off this fiat which is completely crashing and burning as we see before our eyes these banks can't substantiate some of their investments and withdrawals it's a complete it's a complete disaster including you know increases in interest rates across the board by you know several percentage points over you know just incredible increases which you know of course affect the middle class and the lower classes a lot more than the um, higher earners. Um, so definitely we'll be seeing uh, it affect both multipolarity and unipolarity uh, in a way, which um, I, I think it's it's predictably going to be incredibly substantial within our lifetime. We can see this probably happen in the next, I would say, about a decade um, from here. 
No, and that'll only be increased by, I would say, whether they're real or not, PSYOP, especially hacks and, you know, they'll bank hacks and currency treasury hacks from, you know, nefarious actors in the U.S. Of course, it would be claimed Russia, Iran, China. Perhaps those other countries will claim the U.S. is doing the same to them. Who knows? But it'll be a very interesting time as the world economy really faces some of its biggest, biggest shifts and challenges. But As we wrap this up, we want to, of course, talk about the latest going on in the church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, as well as other actually kind of neighboring churches in the Russian world that are facing some of the hardest pressure ever to go. It's one thing, you know, to be evicted from your monasteries. We see that's what's happening. You know, we talked about that in our previous episode. It's another thing to, you know, be arrested. It's all these things. But to be forced at, you know, almost at gunpoint to with the prospect of having it all go away if you just enter into schism, if just it's a little schism. You just, you know, join this little organization, just sign this piece of paper. It's, that's, that's what's happening. And it's so nefarious. And it's, you know, it reminds you truly of the time in the church when it was just, just burn this incense to this God. You don't have to believe it. It's not like the Roman state was making Christians have some kind of sincere belief or anything. That's not what Roman religion was about, but Christ and God had commanded them and they knew that this was what they needed to stand firm on. And so it's, this is, this is truly, you know, the, I can't imagine the demonic temptation that some are feeling to just maybe end this and enter into communion with schismatics. But we, I, I really hope that whatever the forces of good exist in the, in the area and can do things that they're, that they're rallying because I, I, I hate to see schism, schism grow in this way, but I'm, I'm confident that many of these monks will, will stand firm. Yeah, so what you're mentioning here is probably one of the more most nefarious and evil acts we've seen the Zelensky government actually conduct. We're not mentioning war crimes here, which you know could have taken uh, could have taken a very localized um, lo- localized sort of you um, could have been done by local forces, and you know they don't necessarily. Uh, adhere to Zelensky or even follow his regulations. But this is coming straight from the top down, a straight up triple trickle effect of apostasy and essentially trying to bait Russian Orthodox monastics and clergymen as well as laity into coming into schism, uh, joining the false church of Epiphany, these schismatics created in 2018, essentially under the blessing of Patriarch of Constantinople in Istanbul, the ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew, and of course supported completely by the State Department, completely by the CIA, NATO forces, uh, very much a very much heretical and schismatic structure at this point. I'm not afraid of using the word heresy at this point, because heresy and schism is uh, very much aligned in the canons of the church. Uh, and yeah, it is very reminiscent, correctly said, Conrad, of the uh, old pagan, uh, the Roman pagan um, persecutions of early Christians. Because if you recall, Christianity, for those listeners who know the Roman history, um, the Christianity since the time of at least the mission uh, who followed Vespasian and Titus destroying the second temple in Jerusalem, the mission with his persecution upon Christians and following along from Nero's persecution, Nero, I don't think emphasized this much, but the mission at least did ask for Christians in the, in the 90s AD to at least venerate his, uh, or at least worship the genius of the emperor, the sort of spiritual embodiment of the emperor. So to pray for the emperor in a certain way, but which was more than simply veneration. It was like you had to burn this incense. And he asked Christians to, of course, burn the incense for the genius of the emperor at the imperial statues, at imperial shrines. And all they needed to do was do that. And of course, they could pray to Jesus Christ and the Trinity and nothing would go, nothing would go wrong. But of course, Christians refused because Christians don't bow to idols. They don't bow to the genius of the emperor. They don't pray to pagan gods. They don't enter synagogues. They don't enter into false shrines and pray at these places of uh, ecumenical uh, apostasy. Now, we see the same being done here, essentially. Zelensky is saying, all you have to do is just 
follow the schismatics, pray with them, agree with them, join them, and persecution will stop. We're going to agree to, you know, come to terms of the, all these real estate disputes. We're not going to audit your monastery. We're not going to audit all of the various books you have in your ancient archives going back hundreds of years in the Kiev archives. All these pro-Russian books, of course, pro-Russian, we, we say this and, and to a certain point with irony because the entire Russian Orthodox Church was at one point stationed in Kiev, in Ukraine. Of course, there are going to be many Russian sources or even pro-Russian materials in the monasteries found you know, around Kiev and Pachayev and Svetogorsk and any other church belonging to you know the autonomous Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So Zelensky essentially baiting like the pagan emperors of the past, the Orthodox people to prevent persecution. Now, interestingly enough, the one institution that isn't being persecuted uh, that wasn't pure persecuted during the Roman times was, of course, the um, the the rabbinical sect of ancient Judaism, which, due to I suppose its antiquity, was never persecuted by the Roman emperors. You know, they were given leeway of not you know not having to ever pray to the imperial um, the imperial statues, not ever having to burn incense because it was very strongly monotheistic in a sense. So the Romans respected that, and here we see Zelensky also respecting those sort of traditions, but at the same time bullying Orthodox Christians. I think I think overall it's horrendous, and it is a sign of the times that Ukraine is entering into this eschatological twilight of sorts. I want to read this from Ortho Christian. It really just outlines specifically just just says it right here. There's no debate about what's going on. Speaking on air earlier this week, a Ukrainian official from the State Ethnic Policy Commission tasked with the dealing with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church openly revealed the true motivation for evicting the Brotherhood of the Holy Dormition in Kiev Caves Lavra. Formally, the state claims that the church has violated the terms of its lease for usage of the Lower Lavra, the section of the monastery where the caves, monastic cells, and theological schools are located. At the same time, the examining commission refuses to share the actual results of its study. However, speaking on air on One Plus One several days ago, Ludmila Filipovich, a member of the commission, revealed that the actual reason for kicking the monks out is their first stance of loyalty to the Ukra- canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They've already been given options, Filipovich said. There's the option where they choose their abbot and they can ask for a stavropregion from the ecumenical patriarchate, or they so terribly don't want to join the OCU. And she continued, for those who don't like either of these options, we have a wonderful formula. Suitcase, train station, Russia. So the, the, these people make it pretty clear that, you know, you need to get out. And that's, you know, implying that someone who doesn't want to literally move to perhaps somewhere they haven't even been before because they don't want to enter into schism. Well, what's, what's the other option? I, it seems to be that they're going to go to jail. That's what she, of course, didn't say because, you know, optics and whatnot. But that's everyone knows that's what it means. So, again, we, we know that we, we, I believe these monks have probably been prepared for this. You know, this is this is what St. Lawrence talked about. These are the kinds of things that we've very much spoken about on this show. Many saints prophesied about this, and we can we can only hope and pray that parts of those prophecies where it gets better are are swift to follow. That's right, and I, I guess I could just read this excerpt from the sermon of Patriarch Kirill, actually uh, given to the Russian Orthodox Church on the 16th of March, 2023, where he says, uh, Throughout its thousand-year history, the monastery has repeatedly suffered from raids, foreign conquests, and outright persecution of Christians. But only during their reign of militant atheistic power in the 20th century were monastics expelled from the key of Picharsk Lavra. New generations of monks revived the monastery, putting enormous efforts and large sums of money, with minimal government assistance, or even in the absence of it, to restore the monastery restore and the now taken away assumption and refectory churches, but most importantly, to re- recreate spiritual traditions and a fully-fledged monastic life. 
The Lava remains one of the largest Orthodox monasteries in the world, uniting over 200 monks and novices, and on its territory is also located the center of administration of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Hundreds of future clergymen live and study at the Kiev Theology Academy and Seminary. The ultimatum of the state authorities in relation to the Kiev Pechersk Lavra seems to be a monstrous act comparable to the persecution of faith in times of atheism. That is, I may add, communist persecution and Bolshevism. As at the time, the authorities openly ignored the law, not to mention had minimal respect for the rights of the fellow citizens. The work of certain commissions to search for violations in the economic activity of the monastery are not transparent. Its repressive goal is, to complete, is a complete expulsion of monastics from the Lavra. This goal was not hidden by the government officials and representatives from other religious organizations in Ukraine who are under the influence of secular authorities. It is regrettable that when the state leadership of Ukraine declares its com commitment to democratic norms, the European way of development, the observance of human rights and freedoms, these freedoms and rights are violated today in the most blatant way and taken away from Orthodox Christians. So this is an excerpt from the sermon of Patriarch Kirill, which of course cements the fact that the Ukrainian authorities and the Ukrainian government is incredibly hypocritical. It does not care about European values, free speech, all of these you know, values which are frankly anti-Christian to begin with, but also um, that it, they seem to, of course, push ever since the Maidan of 2013-2014. So when we've entered into this uh, age of you know, apocalyptic uh, hypocrisy here. And of course, if you recall uh, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who did he criticize the most during his time here on earth? The hypocritic Pharisees. It's really true. And things are... This, these truly are biblical times that we live in. And I want to just remind people, we're about to wrap this up, but this stuff, this forced schism attempt in Ukraine, this is actually also going on at a certain level in other neighboring countries that aren't even at war. You know, Estonia, Latvia, Latvia especially, the Latvian government is trying to pass laws to force the Latvian church to declare autocephaly. In September, actually, President Egils Levitz, the president of Latvia, submitted a draft law to parliament that would change the status of the Latvian Orthodox Church, making it not just an autonomous church of the Moscow Patriarchate, but completely independent of the Russian church, at least from a legal point of view. And they, they go into all sorts of history and misrepresent it because at one point, yes, Latvia was granted autonomy, which is the same status that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church had, you know, prior to the war and everything. And Autonomy is very different from autocephaly. It means that one has a synod in the metropolitan, but you don't get your own patriarchate and whatnot. This is it's it's a very different thing, and it, it, there's there's nuances to it. We again recommend everybody read Metropolitan Nikiforos's book. Who we're going to talk about him in one second, but this is going on in Latvia. The Estonian government is trying to do the same to the church in Estonia, but the patriarch or the metropolitan rather of Estonia, no patriarch, exactly what we're saying. The metropolitan of Estonia is saying strongly that no. We're going to be resisting any of this, and the the church in Latvia is really coming under pressure because they are they're eventually probably going to be faced with some of these same eviction prospects and issues in Ukraine if you know things don't shake up and get better there because these countries are entirely puppets of the new world order at this point. But the the other thing we have to talk about, of course, is Cyprus. And Dimitri, if you want to say anything, we see there are only two hierarchs left in Cyprus that have fully and staunchly stood against any form of concelebration or recognition of not just the schismatics, but even those who are extremely pro-schismatic. We know Metropolitan Neophytos, he wouldn't even attend the enthronement of the new Archbishop of Cyprus, uh, Georgios, the equivalent of a patriarch. And we also have Metropolitan Nikiforos, of course, who wrote the fantastic book covering the schism. He walked out of a liturgy before the end of the, I believe it was the enthronement of a new, uh, the new patriarch, the new Metropolitan of Paphos, replacing Archbishop George, which it seems that the Paphos 
Metropolia is what is the farming ground for the new archbishop, as Chrysostomos, even before Archbishop George, was also from Paphos. So it seems that that's kind of the, you know, it's the it's the grooming ground for the new archbishop there. And he left before, you know, the concelebration could happen with that with that bishop who had recognized the schismatics and Epiphany. And I can't remember if there was a representative there or not, but it seems that, of course, Metropolitan Neophytos and Metropolitan Nikiforos are staying strong, but... Metropolitan Athanasios, he's stood strong still against concelebrating with the schismatics, I believe, but I think he is less strong in not celebrating with some of his fellow bishops who have taken such strange stances in these new enthronements of these monks that are very pro-OCU in Constantinople. Yeah, I think generally what we can see here is the ancient uh, Church of Cyprus, which has its roots back in the 400s, 80s, or an incredibly ancient uh, jurisdiction in the Orthodox Church. It has the two beacons of Greek Orthodoxy within it, so Metropolitan Neophytos of Morphou and uh, Metropolitan Nikiforos of Kikos. And, and it's necessarily, these two beacons are giving us the most, I suppose, objectively correct statements, even more powerful than some statements from the Russian bishops as to what is going on in the Ukraine and how dangerous it is to Kosovo with schismatics and these uh, blatant semi-heretical structures coming out of the Ukraine. So any any of these priests and bishops coming from this subservient State Department-funded Ukrainian Church of Epiphany, which is, you know, of course, completely man-made and artificial in structure, is are, you know, putting their souls at risk, essentially, by co-serving with them and also appearing at their liturgies. And they're giving us this blatant truth, as well as speaking to the truth of who Zelensky is and, you know, who his government represents, you know, some of their uh, more blatant statements, which, you know, if you would post about it on Twitter, we've seen many notable folks, such as even Patriarch Prime, get banned for, you know, even paraphrasing some of these clergymen. So some very powerful um, statements from those two archbishops. And lest we forget, of course, in the Greek church, there are some great bishops uh, from other other areas as well. Metropolitan Seraphim of Piraeus, of course, a great spokesperson against the New World Order from, from mainland Greece and the EP, as well as Metropolitan Seraphim of uh, Kythera, which he was probably the most outstanding Metropolitan during the time of COVID, standing up against the uh, vaccine tyranny. So very commendable Greek bishops in that regard. So there are many of them, perhaps even more that don't appear on social media as much and uh, more known locally. So very commendable bishops in the Greek Orthodox world. And frankly, today is the time to stand up against this tyranny of the OCU, this tyranny, uh, not the OCU, but Zelensky and his false Orthodox Church that he's creating, this artificial Bolshevik modernistic structure, which needs to be completely dismantled after this entire SMO is over. We can hope and pray for such a thing. And I think we will probably do an Ether Hour episode probably in the future. Who knows how many episodes down the line about maybe some of these great Greek bishops, those that stood up against the vaccine, those that stood up against the New World Order, those that aren't afraid to say you know, some of the things that really need to be said, especially from those with the power to, you know, bind and loose and whatnot on earth. And so I think, you know, well, I think we're going to end the show now. I think we'll do our plugs and everything, but Dimitri, I'll let you say anything about Ether Hour or everything we're doing, but be sure to subscribe worldwarnow.substack.com and check out our other show, Ether Hour. We talk about a lot of uncanonized saints. We're going to be talking about history. We're going to be talking about apologetics. We're going to be having guests on, you know, maybe we'll have Jay Dyer back on to talk more about presuppositional apologetics. Maybe we'll have David Erhan to talk about icons or something like that. You know, we'll be talking about the, again, the worldview that informs us in our geopolitical World War III analysis. So, Dimitri, do you have anything you want to say about what's coming up and then help us land the plane? 
Absolutely. And there are book translations we're preparing. There are also, you know, incredible new new written texts, which we'll be publishing only for, of course, eighth hour and uh, premium subscribers. Those who support us on Substack, we want to give you guys value back. We want to succinctly summarize some of these major issues, which, you know, perhaps you'd be reading on other sources. We want to bring it kind of down and substantiate it for you. But generally now, if you once you do subscribe to World War Now, the Substack, you will receive a tripartite three-hour, almost three-hour series on uncanonized saints in the Orthodox Church. Probably unprecedented content. I've not seen any content similar to it on YouTube in terms of just the, the amount of detail we go into, as well as we speak quite openly about some of the subject matter surrounding some of these uncanonized saints, kind of bypassing any sort of censorship. And it is very explicit, very open. And of course, we're coming from an Orthodox perspective. Worth checking out, but of course, future episodes will be released at least on a weekly basis if not two episodes a week so you'll be seeing a lot more FAR episodes from us it'll be it'll be very exciting in the future lots of great subjects to speak about here thanks to everybody who has already supported it means so much we get new supporters every day and it's it helps us so much it's going to help us make more and more content go you know who knows what the future holds for world war now but with your help it's really and of course the help of of god and the saints it's 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 been this fantastic journey that both of us have been able to go on. But with all of that, of course, as I said, worldwarnow.substack.com, that's our home base. Subscribe to us on YouTube if you haven't already. Hit the bell, get those notifications coming in, like the video. That always helps us out, of course. Follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. Follow me on Twitter, gnomerad, gnome with a G at the beginning, gnomerad. O canonist, that's Dimitri, the Orthodox canonist. We've got a telegram, worldwarnowtelly. That's a great place. We're growing it fast. And we've got a few other things coming in the works as well, some other channels. But with all that being said, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 23, and God bless.